we've made everybody's home part of the institution because we've institutionalized people in their own homes because of the technology, the technocratic order is so powerful today. It's so easy to track and trace people and to ensure or encourage or demand compliance uh, on, on all sorts of medications. So it's about compliance today, you see, about getting people to comply and to take the medications. And I think that's where nursing's become a technocratic um, intervention, really, become a technocratic role. It has very little to do with humanity now, in my view. And I've got so many examples of this in the last three years. and welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by retired nurse Kevin Corbett. Kevin has an absolutely fascinating career and today we're going to be discussing the sociogenesis which is a social creation of illness. Good afternoon and welcome Kevin. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day. Thank you very much for having me. You have an absolutely fascinating background. How have you and your career has been very um, very varied and very unique and it starts off from when you were very, very young. Mm-hmm. Can you just describe? Your... Well, both my parents were nurses and my father was, uh, they were psychiatric nurses and general nurses, but what's called dual qualified. And my father was a nursing director by the time I was in my early adolescence. And we lived in several hospital, uh, psychiatric hospital just outside Colchester, which is now... The hospital's gone now. But it was one of these big asylums. And my father had worked in the asylums uh, after the war. They both came over to to England after the war from Ireland and trained as nurses. And so they had careers in these mental health asylums. Um, And my father was the nursing director. By the time I was, you know, 12, 13, he was a nursing director. He was the head nurse in this big institution. I think there was something in the order of over 600 uh, patients. It's a huge, um, sprawling Victorian asylum. And so I was brought up, we had patients doing our garden. We used to go around the wards. My father would take us in at Christmas and Easter. And we would just know the patients by first name. And and so by the time I was 14, 15, I, I knew what schizophrenia was. I knew what all these diagnostic categories were. And um, my father worked with um, quite a pioneering consultant called Russell Barton, who wrote a book called Institutional Neurosis, which was about how these institutions create hysterical illness, basically, how they induce a neurosis into the population of patients. And so what you're looking at isn't some sort of disease category like schizophrenia or or manic depression. It's actually a construction of the institution. It's it's a result of the impact on the individual uh, of the social environment that they've been living in. So the very thing that was supposed to help them has created a problem. Yes, I mean, you'd look at the, the profile of many of the patients and and there were women that had come in in the 1940s and 50s, and they'd lived in in these institutions. When you backtrack to their notes and you go right back to why they came there, they came through the courts. There were people that were criminalized or medicalized 
for not fitting into, you know, the social order. Women who had children out of wedlock, who were poor, who were, who were um, channeled into a psychiatric career as a label, as a way of society dealing with them, you know, and um, same with men as well. And so that you had this, this, you know, you had these classic cases, but you also had this sort of grey area where people could fall into these institutions and they never get out and they were there for life, like a sentence, really. And they become dependent within those institutions. And what you saw in the 60s, and my father was part of this, was unlocking these hospitals, making them open, trying to make them therapeutic communities to move people out so they could become more independent and less constrained but you see the families were also part of the whole social order you know the, the, the behaviors that were difficult that brought people to institutions like that would have to be accommodated outside and so this is always the, the issue that we're part of the wider social order so we're part of the wider oppression i think if that makes sense and presumably people that once they've been given a label couldn't shift it because it just goes parceled on with them in their medical notes so that there's the pre-framed the next person that comes to look mm. help them or think they're gonna well i think that's why these, these labels like schizophrenia and manic depression maybe it's shifted a little bit now but they carried such uh prejudice and discrimination with them and i remember when i was working uh in um i worked for a couple of years in psychosexual medicine many of the psychiatrists i worked with they were loath to diagnose schizophrenia. This is in the 1990s and 2000s because of the social opprobrium, because of the stigma that goes with it. And um, then, you know, this part of the, the whole process. But I mean, sociologists did studies on these total institutions. And there was a famous study in the States uh, where a psychiatrist got themselves admitted as a patient and masqueraded symptoms and found it very difficult to actually get out of the institution, the incarceration. So it's part of uh, the whole total, you know, what Irving Goffman, the sociologist, called the total institution, you know, that is totalizing. And now we don't have those asylums. They weren't all bad, I have to say. You know, um, the, the one that I lived in, several, had an industrial um, aspect to it. There were workshops, people were trained, people being prepared to be discharged into the community. Some of the patients used it as a hotel. They were working outside and they would sleep there. So it wasn't all bad. But I think the model was, was in, the model was incarceration and medicalization. And um, now, of course, we don't have those institutions. We medicalize people with psychotropic drugs and we, we monitor them outside and they're they're outside begging, or they're part of the social, the wider social order, uh, but they're they're tracked, they're traced, and they're still medicalized. I would say over medicalized. And we uh, just opened the institution, but the institutionalization is still existing. Yes, we've made everybody's home part of the institution because we've institutionalized people in their own homes because of the technology. The technocratic order is so powerful today. It's so easy to track and trace people and to ensure or encourage or demand compliance. 
on on all sorts of medications. So it's about compliance today, you see, about getting people to comply and to take the medications. And I think that's where nursing has become a technocratic um, intervention, really, become a technocratic role. It has very little to do with humanity now, in my view. And I've got so many examples of this in the last three years. In terms of <laughs> acting more as a prison warden than actually acting as somebody that's trying to help a patient reclaim their health or restore their health? I think and there's elements of, you know, prison about healthcare, uh, huge overlaps there. I think what's happened as as nursing has become more linked to biomedicine and, and, and te technological medicine, nursing nurses have pulled back from social contact with patients, from what I call humane caring or even spiritual caring. And it's now about ensuring compliance with the protocol. And it's nothing to do with the individual as much. Now, having said that, I'm not making some bold statement that all nurses are you know, uh, you know, they're all sort of um, killers or they're genocidal or they're inhumane. I'm talking overall, there's this being this thrust towards distancing and um, the academicization of nursing is part of this, which I was part of as an academic nurse, where you know, nurses become, they become theoretical, more theoretical, rather than uh, practice-based, practical. And so they're seeing the situation, the care situation, as a technocratic management job, really, rather than, you know... And I think this is part and parcel of what's being sold to the professions with evidence-based approaches, where it's about what does the evidence show and what's the best evidence... And all of that is totally spurious in my view now, because uh, although we bought into it from the 1980s as a professionalizing agenda in nursing, we got into, became academic departments in universities. I think what's happened is there's been a demise of humane caring, really. And um, it's become the protocol has become everything. Yes. And if you're not adhering to the protocol, you're dangerous. You're dangerous because you're thinking outside the box. And the protocols were only developed as a sort of guideline, really, and not a protocol, not something that needs to be adhered to 100%. And you see, this is where you can hoodwink people. This is what happened in COVID, is you had these protocols going ahead of the reality, of the clinical reality. And people were automatically put on ventilators, they're given toxic drugs like remdesivir. And, and of course, you're going to kill people doing that because it's in, in, inexcusable. You're not looking at the individual. And, um, and that's, that's, I honestly do believe that, that it's the systemic that's wrong, not necessarily the individuals. And um, the individual healthcare practitioners are caught up in this systemic technocratic order today, which is all-encompassing. And it's all demanding. And if you go against it, you're at risk. You're at risk of your job. You're at risk of being reported to your regulator. You cannot think outside the box. You know, you're dangerous if you don't follow the protocol. And what's dangerous isn't necessarily 
it dangers the patient. It's about thinking independently, you know. And we, we, I'm, I taught research and evidence-based approaches for years. We, we implemented it. We thought it was the best thing. But unfortunately, the downside of this now is, is where we are today, where it's become an absolute, utter hegemony. It's become a totalitarian position, I think, really. And maybe that's, people could criticize that that's too dramatic and that it's too negative. But I, I just think what that's doing is putting people off, you know, orthodox medicine and mainstream medicine. And, and you can see that in the last three years, this whole shift away from, I was just looking at the percentage of populations that had all the COVID boosters, you know, and, and why not if they believe what the government's telling them? Why has there been such a shortfall in what's being provided and what's being taken up? by the public. These people are not believing in it. They've had enough of it. There's an attrition there. The more you coerce, the more you cajole and force people, the more resistance you create. And um, I'm glad to see that that's what's happened, you know, um, that there, haven't, there hasn't been that impact. There hasn't been that complete um uh, following of the orthodox of the, the mainstream guidelines. A lot of trust has been lost in allopathic medicine. A lot of trust has been lost. Well, I think it's it's been been lost for a long time, Kate. And and in the last couple of years, it's even further. Even the people that believe there's a virus or they believe there's risk factors or they think that COVID-19 is a real disease category, even they are coming away from adhering to the whole thing 100%. That, that it's, cracked, it's cracked completely, I think. And um, there's room there for alternatives. And I think there's also possible danger there too with what comes in its place. Do you replace something with something that's completely different, completely different epistemology of health? And does it just fulfill the same functions, you know? Does it just create dependency? Does it just create victims? Uh, does it just create an expensive healthcare system to replace the one you've already got? So Maybe. we have, on one hand, the model where it's get the label, don't actually humanise an outcome. Give it, and we certainly see this within physiotherapy, so it's very interesting you um, talking about it in nursing, and obviously physio has its roots in nursing. So get the label, give the label. And that's what you see, from, in my opinion, from graduate physios. The game mm. is just in giving the label, not in actually getting the person mm. back to being able to do whatever it they want to do. Mm. And on the other hand, you risk the model where there's a very vested in, well, both have a financial vested interest, but a vested interest in mm. not getting people better because they need to come get back mm. seeing you and being dependent on you for a very, 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 very long time, because if they don't, you you have your personal financial problems. Mm. So there's a, a, a there's a risk a, 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 on both sides here, whereas actually what we want to ensure is that people are getting the outcome that they desire to, mm. to, to live a good life. Mm. Yes, I think there's a, you know, the, there needs to be some concept of a happy balance here, because Health systems seem to create dependencies, you see. And, and what happens, I mean, 
if you take the, the look at the asylums in the 19th century, so mad, madness was being diagnosed since what the 18th century. If you look at Foucault's work, Madness and Civilization, we started locking up the village idiots, you know, from the 18th century onwards. Then we created bigger and bigger asylums to put people in, more diagnostic labels. You can see it all going off. And then by the 20th century, the expense of it, the social cost of it, the economic cost became too... Society decided it didn't want to pay for that or it didn't want it packaged in that sort of way, so maybe we'll repackage it. And right from the 1960s, you had this, uh, it was Enoch Powell, who was the Minister of Health in the 60s, and he started to think about downsizing the mental asylums, the psychiatric asylums, maybe closing them. And this started this community care movement, which became... By the 80s, Margaret Thatcher and the 90s, is, you know, they'd shut most of the asylums, or they started to. And so you had this repackaging of mental illness as mental health, you know. And you, you have this transfer now where the patient population isn't incarcerated in a geographical location, but they may be incarcerated in other ways through mm -hmm chemotherapy straitjackets through monitoring out assertive outreach teams whatever they live at home or they live in society or they they get welfare payments it's all this social creation of a different category a different order but the numbers probably are even more now i mean you know i don't know the numbers of people diagnosed with serious mental illness or receiving uh, welfare payments but i should imagine it's just the same order as 30, 40 years ago. Um, but you see, you just do it in a different way. You, you know, and it's it's part of this, um, what the French philosopher Jacques Allot talks about as the technique, la technique, where the, the way you do something becomes all-encompassing. And the way we do everything today in this technocratic order is through efficiency and through the best possible way. And that's evidence-based medicine. You know, you've got this idea of one particular treatment is the most uh, efficacious. That's going to be the defining thing that you use, and you don't use anything else. And that's that's where we are today, isn't it? With, um, you know, if you, if you practice medicine in a plural way, or you, um, you are very patient-centered, you can very often uh, get reported if you don't use the official treatments, if you come off yeah, off you know, the types of drugs that you can prescribe, if you're a prescriber. They're very delineated. Um, you know, so your prescribing behavior will be scrutinized through audit very quickly. And if you're prescribing X, when the protocol says Y, you're going to be found out, you're going to have to be questioned, you might even be uh, sanctioned as a result. So it's just, just the way you do the differential diagnosis is, is being shaped and framed and it's being pushed in one direction. And it's financially incentivized through the system, you see. So, you know, um, you saw during the COVID uh, thing in the last couple of years in America, it was very clear that hospitals that ventilated patients got extra money for doing that. 
So there was a financial incentive to ventilate, to put people on ventilators, electively ventilate. And I'm sure if you looked at our system, health system, the NHS, there are financial incentives for trusts built in all the way through. We know this in general practice, that there's financial incentives built into general practice through the um, the general medical services contract, through the GP contracts. They're financially incentivized to do chronic disease management, to do profiling, to do health risk factoring. It's all financially incentivized. So when you, you sit in front of your GP for 10 minutes and they ask you how many units of alcohol you drink, how many cigarettes you smoke, it's all financially incentivized, those questions. They wouldn't do it unless they got money for it. And that's not a cynical view. That's actually how um, the commissioning operates within England and Wales. And I'm sure it's the same in the health boards in, in Northern Ireland and Scotland. Um, so it's, it's a complete inversion in terms of what we're seeing in the financial incentive for health professionals is not necessarily to get people well or help people get well. It's to sustain chronic illness. It's certainly, I would argue, absolutely that's the case. Um, now, if you ask those individuals doing that work what they're doing, they would see it. They would see that as helping people get well. But they, they're not, in my view, because they're medicalizing everyday life. It always ends up with a tablet or a chemotherapy or some sort of expensive intervention, usually for life. You know, Look at the prescribing of drugs like omeprazole and the antihypertensives and the statins. You know, people have collected these from their 40s onwards. By the time they're in the 60s and 70s, they've added in other things. And, and so they're on this panoply of medication that's phenomenal. I mean, it, the, the, um, the cost of the taxpayer, and I would argue all of those, or certainly a great percentage of them, are totally unnecessary. Uh, and you, you knew this from the 1980s and onwards. You had epidemiologists like Peter Skrabanek writing about the death of humane medicine, the, the taking over of general practice with risk factoring, where GPs became risk factor assessors, you know, and then pill pushers. Uh, you know, from the, the Blair years, we had the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence and the, the commissioning of general practice towards being basically the front men or women for the pharmaceutical industry. And, and, and how many people come out of a GP practice after having an hour or half an hour at their GP to talk about their health and how they feel without a tablet, without a prescription? Or the prescription is at the pharmacy if you want to pick it up. Yeah, How many times have you heard that? Because they still get paid. The financial incentive there is to prescribe. And very few GPs have consultations without prescribing anything or refilling prescriptions. So it's a dependency culture. And, and that then is this transfer responsibility. The GP, the service becomes responsible for your health. You don't take any control of it. So people don't know about nutrition. They don't know about gut health. They don't know about respiratory health. They don't know about exercise. Uh, everything becomes pill-based. Um, and the markers that are being used by the health professional to 
create the prescription for the antihypertensives, for the statins. Mm -hmm. The population aren't asking enough questions in terms of is what's this marker based on? What are the I mean, and, and zones exactly, on. and 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 when it when it comes with a lot of funded research that's you know quantitative, you know it's churned out um, by the industry and funded by the national agencies like NICE or National Institute of Health Health Research, and so it's it looks sound, it looks solid, it looks that's the evidence base you've got to follow, and. It's it's sort of a manufacturing process, and uh, once you're in that system, you never get out of it, or it's very hard to get out of it, or it's very hard to question it uh, because the hard science is there. The link with risk factors, statins, for example, the link with high blood pressure and um, pathology is well enshrined. It's you know. It, it, it's well, it's well entrenched to come away from that and say, actually, you know, high blood pressure readings in themselves are incidental to health and have no bearing on health. It's terribly dangerous. I mean, I was on a, a Zoom a few months ago on, on a, one of these um, COVID critics, and I was criticizing the modern protocols for high blood pressure. And this GP said to me, retired, I think very COVID skeptic, et cetera, I said that I was dangerous for saying that. It was very dangerous because people can have silent hypertension and have a stroke. I mean, you see, this is the whole risk assessment, approach to risk in our society. Uh, we've become a risk society, or Rick Beck, the German philosophers talked about this from the 80s. Everything is based on risk. And once you've got quantified risk and it's recorded, as a physician, you can't do anything but go along with it. It's the Jacques Rouleau thing about the technique. You're caught in that system. And if you ignore that, you are going to be sued or the system is going to round on you and say that your practice is dangerous because you've ignored, you know, um, what have you. I mean, I could never work in HIV services after the 90s when I realized there's no isolated virus. The tests will test positive for all sorts of biological reasons, nothing to do with the virus. And what am I to do? Am I going to give work as a nurse practitioner prescribing these drugs to patients? Not at all. I would tell people not to test, not to test. Don't do it. Don't enter that portal. Because once you've gone through that portal, Kate, and it's recorded, whether it's HIV, statins, blood pressure, whatever, you are framed by that quantitation. You're framed by those numbers. And all I can say is God help you because, you know, you'll be caught in that trap. And um, that maybe this is a terrible thing to say to people, not to have any faith in modern medicine because it's been seen to deliver so many good things. Well, has it? I mean, that's questionable. And certainly, I don't see any, any point in people being gridded by a load of numbers every time they go to their GP. I mean, isn't, it, isn't health more about qualitative issues and how you feel and how you are in yourself 
and how your body's performing. And, and, and not to do with having drugs and chemotherapies and preventive interventions just in case, you know, test. You know, this is the whole theory of screening. Better to get it before it's a problem. So women are exposed to mammograms, cervical smears. All these things in themselves have a negative uh, sequelae. I mean, Peter Goetsch's work in mammography is, is classic there. Look what's happened to him, thrown out by the Cochrane group in, in Denmark, the group he created to look at evidence-based approaches. And to, that's when you know he's got something interesting to say. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there you have a good example of the evidence-based movement turning on its own acolytes and destroying them or trying to. When they find that the evidence shows what they're proposing doesn't work or is negative or has a, uh, you know, creates more pathology. And I, I see this time and again. And, you know, talking about the social creation of disease categories and illness, the excess deaths we're seeing now in many countries, uh, undoubtedly, I would say they're linked to the COVID vaccines, undoubtedly, because they must be, given the nature of those so-called vaccines, their injections, they're, bi they're, they're, genetically, uh, they're genetically based uh, chemo um, experiments, basically. So they must be questionable. But also, the huge shift you saw in the last three years of population manipulation through the psychological operations of fear, this must have an effect on, on the populations. And, and undoubtedly, the lockdowns and the closure of primary care and general practice and the closure of the health service that people have been made dependent on up until the last three years, the rapid shift there has had an effect, a negative effect on people. So I think that the excess deaths, from what I can read, that it's multifactorial, the cause. It's quite difficult. It's very difficult. I mean, I'm going to use the, go back to the example of HIV. When my eyes opened mm. to the duping, I remember a message from my brother, big Queen fan. You know, you were yeah. lied to about Freddie. You were, yeah. you know. Yeah. I, I, I knew when I was telling him, you know, this yeah. is his hero and the yeah. grief when Freddie died and yeah. how could that story that he'd committed so much to yeah. not be real? Yeah. Well, because, because of the technocratic, the technology created HIV. I mean, if... if <laughs> The technology created HIV, the testing technology, the medical technology, and also right through the 70s, you had this vilification of gay men as irresponsible, sexually promiscuous, you know, never mind what everybody else in the population is doing. This group were the ones to target. So all through the 70s, you had the linking of disease with gay men, you had the remedicalization of gay men after the 60s, where you had so-called sexual liberation and the illegal, the legal uh, framework changed around sexuality. And it became legal to be gay after 1967, if you're over 21. It's all this nonsense that created disease categories. That was being turned around in the 70s, but people didn't see it. They saw it as health gain. 
that doctors were interested in gay men's health. But they were actually pathologizing gay men all through the 70s. You had hepatitis B, another virus that hasn't been isolated, uh, you know, hepatitis B or hepatitis C. Uh, you had the development of vaccines for hepatitis B, you know. You had gay, uh, gay bowel syndrome was another so-called disease category, totally spurious, where they were li- trying to link bowel disorders to uh, gay sexuality, to having anal intercourse or having uh, penile oral uh, sex, as if as if heterosexuals, so-called, don't have anal intercourse or don't have insertive oral sex. It's just crazy. But they were linking that and creating the data, and then along came gay-related um, grid, it was called, like prodrome for AIDS, and along came AIDS. So you had this commercialization of gay sexuality in the gay scene that was totally toxic and fueled often with drugs. Well, that's not gay sexuality any more than, you know, going to a a singles bar on a Friday night in Newcastle. Uh, If you go out in Newcastle on a Friday night and look at what young people get up to, I mean, you know, you don't need, I mean, it's just risk taking. It's just young people. It's just human sexuality in the raw when people are, are young. And that's what was pathologized in the 70s with gay men. We had this creation of risk groups around sex and hepatitis B, and then suddenly AIDS. Then you developed the testing, the antibody testing. Then you so called isolated a virus, but they didn't isolate. They didn't purify a virus, and Luke Montagna actually admitted that twice in two films, that it wasn't actually the case. They redefined what is a retrovirus from the 1970s in 1984, and hey presto, there's a viral cause for getting ill, got nothing to do with what you do yourself, got nothing to do with your behavior or what you eat or what you're exposed to in the environment, you know, the toxic environment we all live in with chemicals everywhere. It's got nothing to do with that. It's a virus. So that's okay. You're scot-free. You don't need to be responsible and take responsibility for your health. Just follow us, take the drugs, and you'll be okay. And that's the model, isn't it? That's the sort of... And we we see our favourite celebrities pulled into this in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, it's quite a... I mean, I remember um, when he died, when Freddie Mercury died, and... um, I was part of that whole industry, remember? Mm-hmm. And um, I remember people, I remember somebody very, very uh, key to his care package telling me he died as a result of the treatments he was given. Got nothing to do with AIDS. He died as a result of the chemotherapies he was given. I'm afraid to say this is the same in cancer treatment, you know? And uh, it's a very unpopular thing to say. But, you know, there's another golden, there's another sacred cow, isn't there? Cancer treatments. And, you know, the pink ribbons, the red ribbons phrase, the pink ribbons for cancer. It's an industry. You know, how many people survive those chemotherapies, you know? I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, we're all going to die at some point. That's my philosophy, you know? And are you going to, uh, is, is, is death part of life? You know, and and th- this is where people have been made frightened 
uh, in the modern way, the modern living, by not having a balanced approach. Or, or it's so fear-driven today, fear of cancer, fear of death, and um, that's what drives people into the into the GP surgeries, the tests and treatments, just in case, you know, the skin blemish that could be cancer, the, um, you know, going out in the sun is going to give you cancer. Uh, you know, uh, doing this is going to be, give you COVID. You're going to get this virus. So everything about human life and, and ordinary living is being medicalized and, and is underneath it, there's a fear driving people to do this or do that. It's been really, uh, it's the thing that really surprises me is the extent that this is now coming in with very young children as well. Um, and the financial incentives for children to mm. be given a label and the fear of children being allowed out to play. Yes, and I mean, I think that's a very good point. And, uh, you, you know, you just look at how it's it, it, the technocratic order that we live in, the technological science society is about getting people to turn in on themselves. And so playing becomes... A sort of, uh, you know, play is different. It's not social. And so people have, um, uh, what do you call it? It's in the back garden. They don't play, the kids don't play around like we used to do on the corners, on the streets. Going out in the evening, I mean, you know, we used to stay out and we used to play around and we weren't controlled by our parents in the same way as today. The fear, the fear of the other, the fear of the paedophile in schools. Look at the way our schools have become, they're almost like prisons. When you That's look exactly at them. what I say, compare and contrast. Yeah. The railings, the padlocks and the passwords, compare it's and contrast. It's just a fear-driven society, you know. And I'm not saying that there aren't real dangers out there. There always have been. Um, but do you want your children to be um, put into a prison environment? where they're impounded and they can't engage. Do you want uh, that sort of approach? I don't think people do, but they're sold it based on, um, it's just sort of the way you drive on the streets now, on the roads, and the CCTV cameras everywhere. Why? Why is this control? Yes, if people go too fast. But, but is there really that need to have such control? And it is about social control, it's about, and it's financially incentivized. So all these interventions become means of income generation. That's what speed cameras have become for. It's what our planning laws have become in this country with Section 106, you know, the Housing Act, where everything becomes a means of generating income for local authorities, councils, or what have you, and they can't do without it. Once that's inbuilt in the system, it continues and it creates other technologies to control. And unfortunately, I think that's what we, we've done. We've created this technological order that's going to kill us if we don't stop it, if we don't not allow it to happen. And so I think this, this is what I wanted to ask you, Kevin, what your view was on so the healthcare professional, the social worker, the teacher, mm. the local council worker, they're implementing the policies that they are out of self-preservation, even if they don't believe in it, out of self-preservation, 
somewhat required to implement on various levels. Mm. But what is the policymaker's mm. motivation mm. for creating this illness in society? Well, I think that's a $64,000 question. I'm not sure there's one, there's a good answer to it, except people are caught up in these systems. And I don't think we should think that they're totalizing systems and totally dictate people's behaviors. So the council worker, the healthcare professional, the doctor or nurse can have an impact in that system that allows space to come away from the protocol to um, create an adjacent decision-making that doesn't end in, you know, total coercion and total compliance. And I, I mean, this is, this is where um, the hope is for the future, I think. And I think you see it all the time. Um, very good examples of humane care in the National Health Service and in other health systems where this whole approach is sidestepped by the human impact of the professional. And um, I think if people can, if the professional can see the person they're dealing with as a person, not as a patient, not as a number, not as a consumer, not as a user, or whatever sort of discourse that they're couched in, but as a human being, and... Um, can respond in a humane way, then you shouldn't get this total sort of um, Nazi-like approach to the whole situation. That makes sense. So, um, and it starts with ed with trying to um, allow people to take responsibility for their health. So, if the protocol is saying they should have X, but the patient doesn't want it because of X, Y, Z then surely that's their decision, you know. And, um, and of course it gets contentious when you're in a situation like with HIV, it's seen as a communicable disease. Do you get mothers who don't want testing or they don't want drugs for their children or they don't want to be, uh, they don't want the medication for themselves if they're pregnant? So there's going to be a struggle there. But I think there is room in any health system, any system that the professional's working in, where they can actually truncate the effects of the system. They can stop it, they can ameliorate it, or they can do something other than what the system dictates. I do believe that that's the case. We've seen it throughout history with, um, you look at totalitarian regimes like Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, there were, there were people in those systems whose job it was to administer those systems who actually didn't do it in the way that the governments wanted them to do it. They were able to um, sh shift the, the focus, shift the, the impact into a humane context to allow people to live. And I, I hope that that's, and I know that that's happening. I don't, I don't see that we need to, I mean, there's two ways of doing this. We create a completely different parallel order society based on my, my critique or our critique, yeah? So what you're seeing now, I think, is you're seeing these groups trying to do that, the People's Health Alliance with, with healthcare. They're trying to create a shadow NHS based on, you know, a different sort of epistemology, a, a different sort of knowledge base. 
And I think that that's good, but we've always had that with alternative medicine. We've always had other practitioners. You don't have to keep yourself in the state system. You can take yourself out. Of course, you have to pay for it. So it may may mean that people who use alternative medicine are funding it as well as funding the NHS. But that's that's political. That I mean, you know, we 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 should be moving towards arguing for a system where we don't fund the NHS through our salaries through taxation. Why why do I have to fund? You know, for example, I'm just devil's advocate here. Say I want a naturopathic doctor. So why am I funding through my taxation an allopathic service? You know, it doesn't make sense. I've, nobody's asked me what sort of epistemology I want my healthcare to be based on. So if I want a naturopathic doctor, I've got to pay for it in addition to what I've paid all my life into the NHS. You see, that's, that's a strong argument politically for a different system that is more individually focused. But to do that, you deconstruct the NHS funding base. The taxation would go. Imagine the political uproar that would create if suddenly the government said, oh, we're not going to have the NHS anymore. People are going to do it themselves. You can pay for what they want. Yeah. Most people wouldn't know. Well, I'm not saying most people, but some people wouldn't know that there are any alternatives. So what do you do? You can't create, you know, you, you can't create a parallel order, you know, and you can't take yourself. I honestly do believe these ideas of taking yourself out of paying council tax and taxation and this what what's you hear as a common law approach will fail because when we're part of one society, yeah, you know, you know, you can't. I, I personally think it's wrong to say I'm not paying council tax because I disagree with what they're doing with the way they spend the money. I think that's an argument, a very, very flawed argument. If you don't agree with how it's spent, you become politically active to get it spent on the right things, but you cannot not pay for services that you take. You know, I hear these arguments all the time in the anti-lockdown movements about coming off the grid, not paying for gas and electricity and all the utilities and uncoupling, you know, it's illegal, basically. But I mean, the mindset is strange because it's like going into a shop and taking something without paying for it. You know, you cannot do that. You know, if we've got the wrong focus as a society then we've got to refocus it. And you do that by politics. You don't do it by uh, theft, you know, and you, you don't do it by lying and cheating. And you certainly don't do it by theft. And this whole idea that we can take areas of expertise out and we don't need them, like we can defund the police, we don't need a police service. I mean, it's just, to me, it doesn't make sense because human nature is not all positive. And We've always had crime, you know, right from the days of the ancient Greece and Rome and before, and there's always been a police force or uh, a, a society that has actually policed um, criminal behavior, because that's another human characteristic that won't go away. I, I don't believe that we're totally benign. I think there are criminals, and, and um, many of them are you know, working in the pharmaceutical industry. But you know what I'm saying? I, I don't believe in creating a parallel order. I believe in changing, reforming the current order, reshaping it 
And um, I'm not particularly politically active, but I think you can reshape it. Uh, and I think you can reshape it, the scientific order, and you could destroy virology as a discipline. I think it's already being destroyed in the last couple of years. I think that's the future. And you have a reshaping of microbiology. You have a reshaping of science, medical science. And um, maybe a renaissance of this, um, because it hasn't given it hasn't given anything positive. You know, I mean, how can we say that the last three years of lockdowns and implementation of modelling from uh, statistical modelling from epidemiology has been a benefit to society? I can't see an argument for that. Um, and I would like to hear, I mean, is that what people like Neil Ferguson would argue? Uh, is that what the, the funded research centers from the Gates Foundation would argue? People like Sue Mitchie at U University College London, would they argue that their interventions have been positive for the population? They've saved people. They've saved deaths. This is how they'd argue it statistically. I would say on a qualitative basis, Forget the stats, because uh, I'm very dubious on stats. I'm very questionable how you can manipulate those. On a qualitative basis, I would say, no, they've lost it. They've lost that argument. And it's very interesting, the paper that Neil Ferguson produced right at the beginning of the lockdown to argue the lockdowns, they said in that paper, his whole team, they said, we're not addressing the ethical issues of the arguments for lockdowns. You know, we're just looking at it on a pure numbers basis of how many, you know, the R number, you can get the R number within a certain parameter, then the population's safe. That doesn't translate to qualitative gain, you know. It translates to totalitarian lockdown where people are um, imprisoned in their own homes. And, and that isn't human living. And That's it was not... remarkable how quickly... That became neighbours. Yeah, it did. Switching yeah. on each other. That was yeah. what were, was incredibly alarming. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is where, you know, that's that's showing how human psychology can be manipulated through fear mm -hmm. very quickly, and um, people can be pitched against each other. You had people snitching on each other. You had phone lines that the government advertised where you could report your neighbour to the police, and once that started. You started seeing a resistance to it, yeah? Mm. People thought it sounded good, but as they got into the live reality of it, they realized th this is like Soviet Russia or yeah. China or East German, uh, Stasi, you know, we don't want to live like that. We don't want to, to engage with people like that, you know? Um, and I, and the, in the reverse way, Kate, you know, where... I remember I was involved in an art exhibition last year, and was, the theme was exposing the COVID vaccines for what they are, so-called vaccine. And um, people came into the art exhibition with their masks on. I remember one of the artists who was showing went bananas at these people, saying, "We're not. You can't come in here with your mask on." And we had to take this person aside and say to them, "Look, you're behaving to these people." who are masking for all sorts of reasons, you know, as they've behaved to us. I mean, you know, let, let's look at this in the round. And uh, 
what does it matter to us that a couple of people walk around the exhibition with their masks on? If you're trying to influence people, by uh, you've got to do it in a certain way that's going to be congenial. You can't be aggressive with people. And and um, and so I do think that this, I saw a lot of this on the demonstrations in the last three years I was involved in. A lot of the police were used politically. The police didn't want to have to uh, arrest people and give them fines for demonstrating. They, they'd never done that, really, uh, since the miners' strike in the 80s, which is the other op- the other event in history in this country where the police were used politically by the government as a battering ram with the unions. And um, now they they were used as a battering ram with the public for mask wearing or social distancing. And it was absolutely crazy. And I I really felt sorry for the police. I feel sorry for people that have been pitched against each other, you know. And I felt sorry for those mask wearers with this guy going up to them, shouting at them to take their masks off. They're not going to do it. You're going to polarize them even more and you're going to put them off your argument. So does that make sense? It does. And I think what I'm really hearing you're describing there, Kevin, is that the individual health professional can have an impact. So whilst they may feel incredibly lost and incredibly frustrated in the environment they're in, Mm. to have confidence that, there's a ripple effect. So if they are remembering to humanise mm. the environment they're working in, there will be a ripple effect of that with colleagues, with the mm. people they're serving, and that there is um, hope in having that courage to ask questions and do what you think is right. I think that there is great hope. I mean, all healthcare professionals are taught in an evidence-based approach to uh, whatever they're doing, whether they're physiotherapists, physicians, nurses, or whatever. It's the modern day mantra. And there's room there for, you know, if your NHS trust is saying you've all got to go back into masks, well, you just pull out the data showing that that's a flawed decision based on fear. It's not based on science. And you may not be successful there, you know. But the fact that you've actually ventilated that viewpoint will give other people confidence. When they've heard that in the workplace, they'll know there's other people thinking like them or they've never heard that before. They've just believed that these things are efficacious. And, you know, it's only when you get it out in the open and other people can hear it or see it, then you realize it's not so watertight. These diktats are not going to work. And and if you don't implement it, you don't penalise people, you know, uh, for not going along with it. I mean, um, I went into hospital last year to a meeting and um, there were notices all the way through the hospital as I walked in, public must wear mask, public must wear mask. Went to this meeting, it was a high-level meeting, executive level, and all sitting around the table. There's only there's about 10 of us two of the NHS functionaries had masks on, the rest didn't. And I walked past sign after sign after sign. If I'd believed it, I would have had a mask on. Of course, I didn't. I wouldn't. I would never do that. And But not one person came up to me and said, where's your mask? Not one of them. And it's just this whole system, isn't it? This You create a system and most people are not going along with it. 
So why have the system? Why have the notices? Tear them down. Nobody mm. bother, you know. And, and I um, think there's a there's a there's a chance of if you're remaining a terribly compliant healthcare professional that you're t- completely disconnected with the the population. One of my secret habits is probably about once a week, maybe once a fortnight. I enjoy reading the comments section on the Daily Mail, and it gives me great reassurance mm. the level of scepticism now mm. about mm. virology. Mm. So the general population, if the Daily Mail comment section is any representation mm. of, the de- <laughs> of the general population, have really got sceptical. And if the health professionals not... Um, in line with that, you're becoming incredibly out of touch. Well, I think that I think there's you know everyday skepticism is there in the general population and whatever wider population or whatever we call it. That the 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 viral model, the the expectations or the promises uh just don't add up. You know, the when you when you extrapolate it so you've got this virus you know so how many people knew somebody tested positive and they've been with them but they didn't get ill you know and let's look at it the other way you know the idea the the concept of a virus that goes through a population is a model it doesn't add up it doesn't work in real life like that you can be you know we're told that if you're exposed you're all, all going to get ill or you know, so you've been in a room of people, and then a few days later, some tested positive, some didn't. But, but, but then that doesn't add up, does it? Because they should have all tested positive, and they should have all got ill, because that is the end result of that model. And so that model doesn't work. And then you realize, oh, well, <laughs> has there been an isolated virus? I mean, I actually asked... Um, Maria Zambon, professor of virology at, UC, at um, Imperial College, uh, and she was on the SAGE committee in charge of COVID testing in 2020. And I asked her, where is the isolated virus? Where is the evidence for this? And why aren't the tests being trialed through RCTs before the PCR test, before it's rolled out? And she said, there, is no, there was no virus uh, isolated when they did the PCR test, when they invented it, Corman Drost invented it. It's a gene sequence. And ever since, they've tried to, you know, you can get loads and loads of studies showing they've isolated. What they mean, they've got a gene sequence. They've got some sort of impure sample. But there's no, the, the genetic, um, the genome is completely different. There's thousands and thousands of variations it doesn't make sense this this is the end result of virology becoming a genetic paradigm and we've got to re-engineer the whole society based on this what i'd call nonsense really it's become a pokemon world bits of computer well it's it's, i'm afraid this is the technocratic order that people like jacques alou talked about in the 1950s and 60s in his book the technological society where technique becomes the key defining characteristic in society and this is and everything's geared to technique so in medicine in in orthodox mainstream medicine everything's geared to the best evidence who decides what is best well it's methodologically decided by 
if it's been run through a randomized controlled trial. But that's not the only way of assessing knowledge, an RCT, and assessing what is a fact. There's other ways, but that's been held up as the, uh, the only way that we can decide what to give people. Uh, well, it's one way, but you know, there are other ways of knowing. There's other ways of sensing. And every healthcare practitioner knows this. Um, being with people is a phenomenological experience. It may not be quantifiable. And therefore, healthcare practice can be shaped around spiritual epistemologies, around non-quantifiable epistemologies. And, and I would say virology's had its day. It's, it's not a um, predictive science. It's a descriptive science, if anything, based on projective observations, where scientists have projected into what they've seen a model called the virus. You know, that it's a model. It is a model. And there's huge infrastructure built on this now. Pharmaceutical uh, industry, testing industries. It's You can't turn that over easily. It's going to be a struggle. And um, it's not going to just be, you know, the fact that we can come away from it and live, live our lives without having it shows that it's not necessary. But for society as a whole, this it's like the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, how do you change that? You, you can't just pass an act of parliament and it's gone. It's part of our modern day reality that, that I would argue is wrong. How, how do you change that, you see? I think that's the issue. And how do you function within that as a cog in a wheel and you're a cog that doesn't believe in it. You don't believe in the structure that you're working within. And you feel you're the only one, or you feel you're a radical, or you stand out and you're victimized as a result of that. That's the modern day for, I think, for the ethical uh, practitioner, the, the, the true, true scientific practitioner is thinking outside the box, not geared to the tramline thinking of the protocol and what they've been indoctrinated into doing. And, um, and unfortunately, I think we has been a very unpopular thing to say this, but has been a bit like Nazi Germany, really, in the last 30 years, where, you know, people just doing a job, you know, my job is to put them in the ovens and to turn the temperature up in Auschwitz. You know, that's, that, that's how people talked afterwards. That was their job. They were just a cog in the wheel. And if you're the sort of healthcare pr practitioner that's ethical and moral and perhaps spiritual, I hope, then you're not going to behave like that. You're not going to just do what you're told to do, irrespective of the effects, you know. And um, I think this is what happened in COVID. You had people being electively ventilated who were coming in with COPD or asthma because the belief was that their symptoms were due to a virus a community-acquired virus. And I think that that's, that's actually Nazi medicine because there's no evidence for that. And a PCR test is not evidence of the virus. And in the early days, remember, people weren't PCR tested. 
took a couple of days to do the PCR. So it was all projective, getting people to behave in a certain way, protocols guiding healthcare practitioners' behavior, I think is potentially detrimental, if not deathly, in its result. And uh, I'd always say, question the protocol. What does the patient want? You know, what do they need? What What do you think as a professional? You know, you, we're, we're not, um, healthcare professionals are not working on a production line. They're meant to be independent, critical thinkers. They're all graduates today. They've been through a critical thinking uh, program. And it's not about getting them to adhere to a protocol. But unfortunately, that's what it's become, in my view. Thank you very much, Kevin, for your time and for your conclusion there of how the healthcare professional can take ownership of transforming the society that we have been living in and uh, create contribute to creating a better world. Thank you very much. Before you go, I have something special for you. I'm going to be running a live in-person workshop. During that workshop, we're going to spend six hours intensively focusing on how to create a profitable practice. You're going to walk away with a clear profit plan so you can trade your clinical expertise for income. If you're a serious clinic owner or seriously want to be a clinic owner, this is a place for you. Just click the link below in the description and you'll find all the details. I look forward to seeing you there.